Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. More than 10,000 police on the streets, clashes with protesters and hundreds of arrests. Scenes of turmoil have engulfed France and made international headlines as strikes have ground the country to a halt. President Emmanuel Macron is pressing for pension reform that includes an increase in the retirement age from 62 to 64. The French public and powerful trade unions are up in arms. While compromises are possible on the overall pension reform package, Macron has said he won't back down on the most controversial aspect, the retirement age question. Au moment où je vous parle, est-ce que vous pensez que ça me fait plaisir de faire cette réforme? Dites-le nous. Non. Peut-être. France, at time of recording, is at an increasingly violent impasse. Plus exactement, la nécessité de faire cette réforme. Macron's government has survived a fraught confidence vote but Brussels is following it all closely. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's chief Brussels correspondent. On today's EU Confidential, Paris correspondent Clea Colcott will be on our panel to talk us through the view from the Elysee as disorder grips France. To join her, Matthew Karnitschnik dials in from Berlin to discuss the German government's own difficulties and Politico's Carl Matheson on what Politico has uncovered about the use of private jets by the head of the European Commission and Council. Later in the episode, I'll be talking to Daniel Caella Crespo, Director General of the European Commission's Legal Service, about what's happening in the EU's all-important legal engine room. I'm joined by Clea Kalkut in Paris and Matt Karnitschnik from Berlin. Hi there, Clea, and hi, Matt. Hi, Suzanne. Hello. Great to have you with us. So, Clea, give us a sense of what it's like in Paris at the moment. We're all seeing these clips of pretty much chaos uh, in France, in Paris and other cities around the country. What's going on there and um, what can you tell us about uh, the developments this week? Yes, well, at the moment, we're really at a phase where everybody's waiting to see what happens next. So it's quite obvious that the government doesn't want to cave in, that Emmanuel Macron doesn't want to give up on his pensions reform. And so they're trying to put out a message that they're going to stick to their guns. On the other hand, we've got the trade unionists and protesters who say that they're not giving in either. And they're calling for another day of strikes next week. So that's where we are at right now. 
I mean, what's it like living in Paris uh, every day? I mean, is this really beginning to impinge on people's everyday lives? There's quite a sense of, of gloom and morosity at the moment. This has been dragging on for several weeks. There's a sense of, of real sort of political deadlock of, of, of things not, not being resolved. And on a day-to-day life, it's really quite a drag, for example, for Parisians. Um, uh, there's one glimmer of hope. It looks like the trash strike might be um, coming to an end. Uh, so I'm sure you've seen all those those photos of mountains of, of bins piling up in the streets of Paris because of a rolling strike of waste collectors. Uh, so that might be might actually give us uh, you know a breath of fresh air, let's say. Um, but you know, every week we're facing public transport strikes, schools going. Uh, universities closed, and uh, I think that's uh, that's sort of putting a dampener on, on a lot of the the sort of life here. So, what is really going on here at the heart of this dispute? Raising the age from sixty two to sixty four. This is at the heart of this controversy, and Macron doesn't seem to be to be standing down on this. Yeah, absolutely. Trade unionists are fighting this this move to push the legal age of retirement back. They've got support from a vast majority of French people who don't want to see these changes. The polls say two-thirds of French people don't want to push back the age of retirement. But also, it's fair to say that it's a lot of a discontent about uh, politics is feeding into this, a sense that we're at a phase where Emmanuel Macron is now in his second mandate. Um, he, he was defeated in the parliamentary elections last year. There's a strong far right. There's a strong far left element in, in France. And uh, there's a sense that people don't feel that their views are represented. Political dialogue seems to not be working here. Uh, we haven't heard that much from Macron really uh, publicly on this issue. Do you think he's going to be really impacted politically by this? I mean, the pensions reform was almost the only issue on which he campaigned for re-election. So if he's not able uh, to push this through, not able to get it accepted, um, it will really affect the rest of his mandate, um, particularly as, you know, he doesn't have a, a majority in parliament. So, you know, if this is the end of the sort of ad hoc uh, deals that he had with uh, members of the opposition that might be quite close to Macron's positions on certain things like the Conservatives, Uh, then it's difficult to see how he's going to tackle any big issues in the next four years. Matt, I mean, there have been protests in Germany, but not quite uh, going to the barricades, not quite to the extent that we've seen in Paris. No, I haven't seen any clips of burning rubbish quite yet. But but fill us in, there was was a strike on, on Monday in Germany. That's right. It was a strike by transport workers mainly and also people who work in uh, local local governments around the country protesting and demanding higher pay of course they want over 10% uh, they they want over an over 10% increase in in their salaries because of the inflationary pressures they're feeling and it really shut the country down for an entire day because the airports the train stations and so forth everything was closed and I think it is probably a sign of, of things to come because it doesn't look like the um, government and, and the uh, main train operator in Germany, Deutsche Bahn, is willing to give these protesters what they want. 
is a lot of this uh, discontent uh, channeled towards Schultz himself, the chancellor, or would we have expected this as just a natural outcome of these huge inflationary pressures that all citizens are feeling at the moment? I don't think it's really directed at Schultz per se, but there is definitely a trend here of countries in in Northern Europe in particular, and France has been this way for a long time, obviously, that have lived very comfortably. And it's starting to look like they're running out of runway in many of these countries in terms of the government's ability to maintain these very generous welfare systems. And I think that is really kind of the the larger picture here. In Germany, these workers are asking for a more than 10% increase in their pay, which is which is extraordinary. The governments, the local governments can't afford to do this. The rail operators certainly can't afford it. So something is going to have to give here. And, and that's why I think it is a sign of things to come. And by the way, one thing nobody is talking about here is the additional economic pressures this is going to create and problems for the ECB. If you do have these very generous uh, wage packages with, you know, across the board 10% increases, that is not going to help the Eurozone's inflation problems. Absolutely. And you hear voices within the European Central Bank in Frankfurt warning of that. I mean, the whole issue of inflation is what is driving this inflation. A lot of it was obviously energy, but there is a fear by some thinkers in the ECB that, you know, wage hikes uh, would, as you say, propel this inflation. France, interestingly, was somewhat shielded uh, from those energy hikes that we saw, uh, price pressures that we see in other parts of Europe, it, it obviously is not as dependent on Russian gas traditionally. Claire, just on that issue, on the pension, the one thing I'd lo- love to kind of just clarify, I've been seeing, you know, we're all hearing about, you know, France, this retirement age being moved to up to 64. It's a bit more complicated than that, though, isn't it? It's not that everybody retires in France when they're 62. Yeah, no, indeed, it's a bit more complicated than that. And of course, when you see, oh, they don't want to budge the age from 62 to 64, it raises eyebrows everywhere. Um, I mean, I mean, the truth is that um, the French, the French tend to, you know, um, retire later than that, that that's just the legal age, that actually people spend longer um uh, working, um, that it's not quite as generous as, as, for example, maybe pension systems in Nordic countries, etc., etc. But France kicking back against what is a trend due to raising life expectancies, due to difficulties in funding these pension systems today that were established decades ago. All this is something that's happening across Europe. And so that France refuses that trend raises some questions about how, how, uh, uh, if you're not pushing back the legal age of retirement, do you do you reform things? I mean, watching it here from Brussels over the last few years with the uh, the demise or uh, the end of Angela Merkel's career as German chancellor, there's been very much the sense. And I don't think I'm simplifying here that Macron has stepped into a role as a kind of de facto, not quite leader of Europe, but a very, very strong political figure in terms of EU politics. How do you think this impacts his international standing? Will it have an impact? I think um, if if 
uh, Macron manages to get this reform through, and if the protests fizzle out, I think he, I think it will wash off. I think he might, you know, he will have, everyone would have agreed that it's difficult in France to reform these things, and it, it got pretty heated, and he, he, he stood through it. Um, but if he has to backtrack, I do think it will uh, affect his international standing. The sort of credibility around him will suffer if, if uh, you know, when it comes to hard facts, he can't deliver. I mean, Matt, how do you see it in Berlin? I mean, do you think Macron is this kind of de facto leader, this the Franco-German engine that has been at the center of the EU uh, since its inception, really? Do you feel that these two powers, Berlin and Paris, are, are kind of shadows of their former self when it comes to leadership in, in Europe and, and what that might mean? I, I think they're definitely shadows of their former self. There's certainly not a perception either in Berlin or in Eastern Europe that Macron is the de facto leader of Europe. And it's worth remembering that it doesn't look from, from the outside like France is really working very well. The, the, the French economy is not doing particularly well. The European economy is not doing particularly well either. So I think there is this sort of default um, attitude that that people still look look to Germany because of its its economic power and um, because especially in the eastern half of the EU so many so many companies are tied into uh, the the German economy. Finally, before I let both of you go, uh, dying to know, Matt, is the bunting out for King Charles in Berlin as we speak? How's it all going? Well, it's it's interesting that you say that because I'm I'm actually watching on TV as we speak right now his arrival at the Brandenburg Gate, and he's he's just working the crowd right now, shaking hands. Uh, he was received with military honors, uh, which is uh, you know a bit surprising in Germany given the state of its military, but they managed to uh, put a band together. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of Union Jacks out there in the crowd. I've been surprised that there isn't more buzz uh, surrounding it, to be honest. Maybe there will be tomorrow in the coming days. Clea, any update? We know that King Charles was supposed to visit France first, uh, and then that trip got postponed uh, by the French government because of the strikes. Any update on when that might happen? Yeah, uh, I mean, when they postponed it, Macron said possibly early summer. Um, So I think think there's there's hope that there'll be... um, you know, they'll be able to do a find a new date then. Um, Emmanuel Macron's going to go for Prince uh, Soy. King Charles's coronation in May. Um, I mean, obviously, this is sort of put a you know a big strong break on on the sort of um french british revival you know the the revival of the french british friendship that we had going here with you know we had rishi sunak come over and then it was supposed to be uh, crowned with the the visit from from king charles obviously that's all been thrown aside by by the by the protests that made it impossible for him to come over well plenty of time to get your bunting out uh, clea <laughs> in anticipation for that trip Matt, Clea, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential this week. Thank you. Thank you. Though, Matt, we will be speaking to you later in the programme for our Decoding Brussels section when we unpack Brussels jargon for our listeners. Before we get to our interview of the week, um, I'm joined by Carl Matheson, who's going to bring us up to speed on a political story this week. And that is new reporting that shows that the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and European Council President Charles Michel 
use private jets to travel to the COP27 climate conference in Sharm el-Sheikh last year. Carl, fill us in on this story. Hey, Suzanne. Hi. It's nice to be on again. Yeah, we working with a couple of colleagues, um, Giovanna Coy and Marie Eccles, we had a Freedom of Information request in that revealed a whole bunch of Charles Michel's travel data, including what modes of transport he used. And within that, it showed that he has been, well, let's say, He's got a preference for the private jet. Um, he's used private aviation on 72 trips out of 112 since he took over the job in 2019. And digging through that data, it also became clear that uh, one of those flights was the trip that he went on late last year to go to the COP27 climate talks in Egypt. Yeah, so interesting. Obviously, you know, interesting to hear that this landmark climate change conference, you've got the heads of the EU uh, taking a private jet. Not exactly good for climate change. I mean, what was their justification for this, Kerr? So both of them are governed by internal rules of the council and the commission. And there's no suggestion that they broke any of those rules um, because those rules are pretty rubbery, actually. They say that both presidents should use commercial flights whenever they're available and whenever they fit with the demanding travel schedule that they have. But, of course, there's always discretion. And in this particular case, they said that those flights were not available. The council um, spokespeople said that Charles Michel's team looked for lots of different options, including flying with Belgian Prime Minister Alexander de Croo. And then when they exhausted those options, they invited Ursula von der Leyen to share a private flight, which some listeners might find amusing since uh, they famously don't get on so well. So, And those cabins are small. <laughs> I, I suppose ultimately this is about practice what you preach, essentially, that um, you know they flew to Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt and both von der Leyen and Charles Michel were there to talk about the seriousness with which the EU takes climate change. But we know that private jets emit enormous amounts of carbon dioxide and, you know, we calculated with the help of some NGO calculations that the flight probably emitted about 20 tonnes of CO2. The average EU citizen over a year emits seven. So that gives you a bit of a guide of how big the impact of one of these flights can be. Wow, interesting. And as you say, not a good look for the EU when it's trying to uh, sell itself or promote itself rightly in a lot of ways as a kind of an international front runner when it comes to climate change. Thanks for that, Carl. Thank you. Now it's time for a short break, but when we're back, we'll be bringing you the insider's view from one of the most influential backrooms of the EU that you may have never heard of. Stay with us. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our guest on EU Confidential this week is Daniel Cahaya Crespo. Director General of the European Commission's Legal Service. This division of the European Commission is the home to some of the most important legal brains in Brussels. But the details of how it operates, how it works, is rarely the stuff of headlines or detailed scrutiny. My guest today started his career in the legal service back in the 1980s and since then has worked in a number of senior EU Commission jobs, including as Director General of DG Environment and Internal Market. His current job, since 2020, sees him back where he started, only this time at the top. I'm delighted to be joined now by Daniel Calleja Crespo. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Can you start by explaining to our listeners, what is the Commission's legal service and what exactly do you do? The Commission's legal service is perhaps one of the least known services in the European Commission. And yet, it is one of the oldest services in the European Commission. When the European project started, the first thing that was needed was a group of lawyers to advise the institution and to defend this institution before the law. The Commission Legal Service has three main tasks. First of all, we advise our institution. We are the in-house lawyers of the Commission. Second task, we have the exclusive representation of the European Commission the General Court of Justice, the European Court of Justice, WTO. There is always a lawyer of the European Commission Legal Service who is defending our institution. Third task, we ensure clarity in the legal texts. So we have a team who check the consistency and the quality of EU law, which is something very important for our citizens. So on that third point, for example, when there is new legislation introduced, the legal services... Have a look at it. It, it. The legal service has the duty, besides ensuring that it is legally solid and consistent, to ensure that the proposals coming from the Commission have the proper quality in terms of better regulation, in terms of consistency, in terms of clarity. And do you have any standards you need to adhere to, or who decides what standards this need needs to be in terms of clarity? We have a team which ensures the linguistic consistency, And we ensure, in accordance with the legal standards, but also with the principles of better regulation, which have been adopted by the Commission, that the texts meet these standards. So that's your kind of guiding light, if you like, when you look at these very complicated and sometimes, dare I say, quite dry legal texts uh, that come from the European Commission. The law seems dry, but it's actually quite exciting. (laughs) Uh, And what we have to ensure, besides these elements, is that it is easily understandable. So we're sitting here in the first, on the first floor of the Berlimont building, the European Commission headquarters here, looking out at a very busy Schumann roundabout. How many people work in the Commission so Legal Services? We have 300 lawyers of 27 different member states. It's a, like a law firm with specialised lawyers working in different teams so that they can provide the most effective 
contribution in the various matters. Uh, most people would probably think of the European Court of Justice. That's kind of what people think of, I think, when they think of the EU and law and the legality of EU rules. Just explain to us how you guys interact with the European Court of Justice. The European Court of Justice is dealing every year with many cases. And in all the cases in which the Commission brings a case against a member state, so infringement proceedings, there is a lawyer of the Commission which represents the Commission before the European Court of Justice. And when a judge has to decide on a case at national level, and there is an issue of EU law which comes into play, the national judge may ask the Court of Justice to clarify what does this mean. In these cases, there is always a lawyer of the European Commission Legal Service helping the court to give the answer. This is a very, very work-intense activity. We have 1,700 cases ongoing, and we have to intervene in all the official languages. Let's say Poland, there has to be a lawyer of the legal service who is responding in Polish. So what are some of the cases that stand out to you over the last few years? I'm thinking of the big cases in competition, for example. The European Commission has been involved in all the cases dealing with competition or with state aid. But we have also been involved in infringement proceedings, in the case when a country doesn't comply with EU law. Or the latest trend in cases is the big increase in the cases concerning sanctions, either by travel bans or by freezing the assets, or the case of the Russian television. This is RT, uh, the, RT, Russian, RT. the Russian television and it, its presence in Europe. One of the issues I, I could imagine can be difficult is you mentioned some of the big cases. I mean, the Apple tax judgment or these big competition cases that sometimes the commission, you know, lost or, you know, it was brought, brought to, to Luxembourg to the European Court of Justice in, in the case of Apple. But you mentioned rule of law and conditionality and all those issues. I mean, you're not mentioning the two countries, but it's I can. <laughs> and they're, uh, you know, Poland and Hungary, which have been clashing yeah. with the European Commission. It's very political, a lot of this. I mean, a lot of people would say it's political. How do you counter those suspicions that this is always a political decision? At the end of the day, any decision that the Commission takes is subject to the scrutiny of the European Court of Justice. When Poland and Hungary contested the right of the EU to suspend the financing of these countries for breach of EU law, these countries had the right to go to the Court of Justice. So what I'm trying to say is that these cases may sound very political, but at the end of the day, they are always subject to the scrutiny and to the control of the European Court of Justice, who has the last say. The other stereotype here about the EU, generally the European Commission, and particularly something like the legal services, is that it's very bureaucratic. I mean, is that what would you say to that? You look shocked as I say the, that. The, the legal service is the least bureaucratic service in the European Commission. In most of the DGs, you have a very hierarchical structure. The legal service is structured in teams. We are one of the best, I often say we are the best EU law firm, in Brussels, and certainly the cheapest. And uh, <laughs> we work as teams. Of course, there has to be some consistency in the lines that we take. But it would be a great mistake to say that we are very bureaucratic. Of course, we have to follow the rules and procedures, and we have to ensure that our institution respects the rules and procedures. But this is not about bureaucracy. It's also about making sure that the law is respected 
and that the decisions that are taken comply with the legal procedures. I'm having my hand here a new book that has just been published. It's called 70 Years of EU Law, A Union for Its Citizens. So tell us a bit more about this. This has been yes. launched in much fanfare here this, in Brussels. Yeah, thank you so very much for asking because it allows me to sell the book. Although the book is for free. <laughs> if you go to any of the platforms, and I have to be technologically neutral, and you type 70 Years of EU Law, you yeah. can download for free okay. this book. The whole legal service, all of the teams of the legal service have contributed. We try to explain how this European coal and steel community, which was built 70 years ago, has become today the European Union. And the guiding thread is that what has made it possible has been European law. European law has improved the quality of life, the quality of environment, the right to have safe food, consumer protection. And yet, you know, we're going to hear this coming up to the European Parliament elections next year, for example, or we heard it during Brexit. Sometimes people point to EU law and the primacy of EU law as the problem with the EU. They don't like that the EU has this much power of all those areas that you mentioned. Why do we need to have primacy of EU law? Because if we didn't have this principle, the rights of European citizens would not be guaranteed in an equal way across the EU. If in one case you would have a national system prevailing over the, the EU rules, in another a different situation, the principle of autonomy, the uniform application, the equality of rights between European citizens would not be guaranteed. You would have first class, second class, third class, 27th class citizens because they would not have the same level of protection. Finally, you've had a long career in the EU. I, I, I can call you a Eurocrat, I think. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's accurate in this case. You know, most recently, you were a DG Director General of the DG Environment, for example. I mean, how, do you, how has the EU changed since you first arrived here? Or, for example, I mean, even environment, such a, a big topic. Are you disappointed how things have progressed there? Or how would you assess how things have well, changed? I, I joined the European Commission in 1986, so you're not uh, one of the 12 only. member states. For me, it was uh, a great period, full of excitement. My country joining a democratic club, prosperity. I have not had a single moment of boredom. And throughout my career, I have enjoyed immensely working in the Commission. We are trying to do our best in the interest of European citizens. And when you look at the environment policy, you can be anything but disappointed. Europe has been leading in environmental matters. Whether you talk about biodiversity, fighting climate change, reducing emissions, clean air, quality of water, circular economy. This is being pursued now through the European Green Deal. And I think we are actually delivering on the ground. Okay, well, let's see uh, what the next uh, 30 or so years will bring or the next few years will bring in that. Uh, that will be a second book of the legal service. <laughs> 100 years of the legal service, let's see. <laughs> Daniel Calleja, Clespo, thank you very much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And finally, on this week's podcast, we're turning to our regular Decoding Brussels section. I'm joined again by Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi there, Matt. Uh, Hi there, Suzanne. Good to have you back with us. Um, look, our word this week 
is again European Council. Our regular listeners will remember that last week uh, we our word of the week was European Council. But we're now kind of returning to it this week because, Matt, you rightly pointed out that European Council is distinct to Council of the EU, which is again distinct to Council of Europe. So you're going to unpack these uh, these jargon terms for us. So European Council, we explained last week, was the regular meeting of EU leaders, the 27 EU leaders that meet for these scheduled summits that happen here in Brussels. But there is another phrase that are, is often mixed up with that, and that's Council of the EU. Explain. Right. If you follow EU news at all, you'll you'll know that there are constantly meetings in Brussels between uh, ministers and permanent representatives who are basically ambassadors from the member states who gather in Brussels regularly to discuss important issues and legislation and and what have you. And uh, these meetings often take place under the aegis of what is known as the Council of the European Union. These are often meetings between ministers uh, to discuss uh, legislation from the European Parliament and so forth. And, And this is a key step in EU uh, decision-making. Finally, there's also the Council of Europe. That's a third body. Explain to us what that is, because that is very, very different, and it's actually got nothing to do with the European Union. Yeah, the the Council of Europe is really the easiest one to get into. It has 46 members. It's based in Strasbourg and and really is a, a forum to discuss issues, maybe not on the front lines of the sort of political scene, but uh, much more in the background. And so it can be useful, I think, for countries for that reason, if there are issues involving human rights in, in various corners, to, to raise these things quietly. But it is not an organization that is uh, very prominent in the headlines, let's say. And it's also the home, if you like, of the European Court of Human Rights, uh, the International Court of the Council of Europe, which, of course, is an important institution, also based in Strasbourg. Uh, But thank you for that, Matt. Good explanation. We'll get back to you in the coming weeks for some more jargon busting. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow or subscribe to EU Confidential wherever you're listening so that you never miss an episode. And do keep your ideas and feedback coming. You can email us at podcast at politico.eu. This week's episode was produced and edited by Robert Nicholson and Artemis Irvin of Whistledown Productions and Zoe Bass here in Politico in Brussels. I'm Suzanne Lynch. See you next week.